University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 1. This week has actually marked a very unique anniversary for a coastal town in Oregon. You see, in this week, in 1970, the Oregon State Highway Division was faced with a whale of a problem. What to do with a 45-foot, 8-ton sperm whale that washed ashore and died? Some pure genius came up with this idea. Let's blow that sucker up with dynamite. Instead of cutting the whale into pieces and moving it, or maybe even burying it deep into the sand, and when interviewed about this feat before it was undertaken, the one engineer said, well, we're confident it will work. The question is, how much explosive will it take? Things you don't get to say every single day when you go to the job. So they loaded the area around the whale with dynamite and asked all observers to move back what they thought was far enough, about a quarter of a mile, from the whale carcass. And the sand dunes were covered with observers. The trigger was switched, the blast was exploded, and sand and cellular matter went everywhere. Except the spectacle was soon turned into something didn't expect, because what they thought was a safe distance, soon as large chunks of whale began to fall on spectators, even going as far as a quarter of a mile away and totaling a car with this large piece that landed in the cab. And the crew ended up bringing in a bulldozer to dispose of the most, uh, most of the carcass that remained intact of this great sea creature. Many of you are thinking to yourself this question. I will go ahead and answer it. Yes, the full video of this is available on YouTube. Now, you might be thinking, what in the whale does this have to do with Matthew chapter 8? By great Ahab, I like to answer this wonderful question. You see, when we're faced with the challenge of what seems to be an obvious solution, more often than not, too many times, we as followers of Jesus choose to do something that seems so unreasonable, like taking a whale and disposing of it by blowing it up with dynamite. More specifically, as we consider God's response to the non-religious, the outcast, the marginalized, the so-called sinners, the outcasts of the world, Jesus' followers have gone to great lengths to respond with a curious choice. Oftentimes it doesn't reflect Jesus. And what we're going to encounter in our next text this morning, as we progress our way through the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus responds in a way that his followers and the religious leaders don't expect. Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to encounter an outcast, a religious outsider, and an enemy of the state with profound compassion and grace and transformation rather than forced religion and judgment and condemnation and hatred. And I guess you can say that Jesus actually takes a proverbial stick of dynamite and sticks it into the social and religious and political perspectives of the first century Palestine and blows it away with this new way of thinking and living. The narrative begins in Matthew chapter 8 verse 1. 
When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So Jesus is continuing his ministry. He's going in and out of these towns. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He's healing disease and sickness. And then he comes across a man with leprosy. Now, leprosy um, still exists to this day. It's a disease that produces scales and inflammation and lesions. Uh, it's a horrible, a debilitating disease, a painful skin condition that comes with so much discomfort and pain. A person couldn't bathe themselves because they would have these open sores and wounds. And over time, it would develop worse and worse. In a sense, after many years, this person would maybe start to lose their appendages and limbs. And eventually, one's face would become disfigured, their hair would fall out, and their eyes would begin to spoil. Leprosy was a horrible sight to see. And according to the law of Moses, a person who suspected to have leprosy should go and present themselves to a priest to be examined, then give it a period of about a week of quarantine to determine whether they are considered to be clean or unclean by the religious standards. And if a person was found to be unclean, they must leave their family, they must leave their home, they must leave their town and live among many lepers or live by themselves. If they encountered a normal person, they would have to cover their face and run away screaming, unclean, unclean. Imagine not only the physical turmoil this man faced, but then to begin to face the familial turmoil of leaving the people you love most out of fear of not only getting them sick, but to have them considered to be religiously unclean. They were not welcome in their home, they were not welcome in their city, they were not welcome in social gatherings, and they certainly were not welcome in the temple courts. Literally, this leper has become an outcast physically and relationally and socially and emotionally and spiritually. Have you ever noticed that we have labels for everything? We have labels on our, our clothes and our phones and our shoes and our cars, all that we have. Labels are, are intended to do a couple things. First is they tell us what we are, are getting. Uh, labels help us understand what we're picking up versus what we're not. So can you imagine going to the grocery store and walking to the canned food aisle and there not being a single label on there, just an aisle full of cans? And my biggest fear would be that you would find Brussels sprouts instead of green beans and then somebody would not saute them or cook them with any spices, which is the worst possible thing in the world. I would rather hop into a tank full of great white sharks than eat unseasoned Brussels sprouts. They are just awful. And don't say they taste like little cabbages, because they don't. I love cabbage. Labels are intended to help us understand what a brand is, what separates one thing from another. There's a reason why my iPhone case is transparent enough so that you can see the apple on the back. You see, clothing brands intentionally place their logo or their label in such a way so that we understand what we are buying and what we are wearing. More often than not, we also label people too. Think about the labels we give people. The girl that reads a lot in class and gets good grades, you might label her a nerd. Later on in life, you're going to label her boss. But all too often, we hand out more severe labels based on political views race, nationality, sexuality, religion, worth to us in a lot worse terms than I'm willing to say because I don't want my inbox to fill up tomorrow morning. Our society thrives on labels. Our politics thrives on labels. And I guess we label people for the same way that we label our products. We want to know what we have and what we don't want. 
who were willing to engage and who were not willing to engage. And our religion oftentimes thrives on labels. In fact, typically in the Gospels, this, this man would have encountered Jesus along with some of the Pharisees who would have verbally combated their encounter with Jesus with some sort of self-righteous banter. And self-righteous labels, self-righteousness labels others to justify self. You see, the Pharisees more often than not spoke with the motto of us versus them mentality. There is a prayer from one of the Pharisees in Jesus' parable that goes just like this. Oh God, I thank you I am not like all these other people. These adulterers, they're unritualistic, they're unclean, they're robbers, they're evildoers, and these tax collectors. But this is what self-righteousness does. It, It leads us to believe that we can become elevated socially and religiously and mentally above other people. And therefore, self-righteousness judges other people and puts them in a particular category because they're not like us. Self-righteousness judges others by creating categories of sins. These are the no-nos. These are the really, really bad things to do. And it's not like we do it out of our own knowledge, just like the Pharisees who are justifying it by their law. There is a dangerous phrase, the Bible says, that oftentimes is used to give people labels. However, it is not the self-righteous religious people that this man encounters in the narrative. Instead, he encounters Jesus of Nazareth. And apparently Jesus' reputation precedes him, and this man has obviously heard of Jesus' ability. He falls at Jesus' feet. He's begging this man. It's a moment of humility and shame. He needs a change in his life. He's awful, but he needs Christ. We need Jesus. Our society needs Jesus. How often do we not see the need of Christ in other people's life? And there's All too often in our world around us, we see the obvious things of people's need of Jesus in war and hunger and poverty and corruption and the hunger for power. But then as we dig a little deeper, we discover racism and sexism and misogyny and economic injustice and xenophobia and bigotry and religious corruption and environmental devastation and lying and religious intolerance and broken families and abuse and cheating. People need Jesus. We discover the economic and cultural and social and political and spiritual brokenness and darkness and hurting. People need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Can you imagine yourself in this man's shoes? Can you imagine encountering a person who you can believe can radically transform your life? Would you be willing to ask Jesus to make you clean? The text picks up in verse 3. It says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer a gift as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I think we've pretty well established this man was a sight for sore eyes. He stunk, his skin is falling off. He's disgusting by all society's standards. But Jesus doesn't treat him in a way that his appearance and his religion told him to treat this man. Did you catch it? There's something fascinating in this text because more often than not in the Gospels, when Jesus wants to heal someone, he speaks healing into their life. But instead, Jesus chose to reach out and to touch 
this man. This man with this highly contagious disease. And Jesus shows us something so fascinating by this touch of healing. Jesus shows us how much God loves and values him. Jesus' love goes beyond all understanding of society and religious systems. In fact, in this very act, Jesus became a criminal. Jesus became a criminal by the laws of his day and by the religious laws of this day. Jesus chose to become a criminal to show this man just how much God loved him. Jesus isn't even concerned with throwing in religious banter at this man. He simply cleanses him and loves him. I've tried to understand it. But stories like this continue to baffle my understanding of God and God's compassion. This story shows us just how unlimited God's compassion is. You see, society and religion and families place severe limitations on this man, but Jesus, in an instant, removes all of that to make this man full in in God's family. How often do we see within our world Barriers that are put up, walls that are put up, based on the labels that we create for other people. And we see in this moment that God's love tears down all those barriers with full inclusion, with full love for the sake of who we are, not what we have done, but for who we are, children of God. With God, there is no race, there is no nationality, there is no faith practice, there is no sin, there is no marital status, there is no social faux pas, there is no tally of mistakes, there is no economic status, there is no gender identity or sexual orientation, there is no physical or mental ability, there is no political stance, there is no theological perspective or station in life. With Christ, there is simply love. And it blows my mind how this encounter within the Gospels brings full inclusion. And yet this story isn't over because Matthew continues to write in verse 5, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. You see, Jesus has transitioned from this man into this major metropolis in Jesus' day. This was a place where the Romans would collect taxes and tolls. Therefore, there should be some sort of Roman official in this town. And a centurion would have been a man among men. He would have been a warrior and commander of warriors. The centurion would have been part of a Roman occupation in Israel of the time. He would have had at least 100 men under his service. And so it tells us of this man's great power simply in calling him a centurion. May we remember that, that the Romans were hated in Jesus' day. They were there with might and dominance. They ruled the province of Israel, overtaxing the people and suppressing them. And we learn that the centurion has a servant. Surprise, surprise. We also learn that the servant, the slave, is gravely ill. And the centurion cares enough for his slave to go and to seek out the help of Jesus. It's a fascinating story for us to begin to encounter because unlike this centurion, we don't expect someone of such high power to care for someone of such low-born nature of their life. And yet this picks up in verse 7 where it says, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just as you say a word, my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go, and he goes, and that one to come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, 
and he does it. You see, here is a Roman warrior, a commander of a great legion in this town of taxation and tolls. And yet we see something fascinating about this man. He calls Jesus Lord. This man of great power and great might is recognizing that Jesus is above him. That Jesus is greater than any authority he carries with his mouth or with his sword. That Jesus is far beyond him. He humbles himself. And immediately to Jesus' crowd, this would have been a fascinating and astonishing moment. Here is this centurion, a man of great power, and yet he not only humbles himself before Jesus, but he believes that Jesus can do something to change this man's life. He not just says, say a word and let it be done. He uses this Greek word, heal, which is the Greek word iome, which means to, to heal or to cure but it also means to make someone whole, to restore them, to bring someone full salvation. This man of great power recognizes that Jesus has a power greater than he has, and he believes that Jesus can make his servant completely whole, to restore him back to better than he was before. And if that doesn't bring us amazement, it says in verse 10, When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their place at the feast of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. Let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. This is a fascinating exchange with Jesus. We almost forget that there's this crowd following Jesus. I imagine it much like when Tiger Woods is at a major and you've got this mass of people that are following him wherever he goes. I can't even get a ball off the tee box with three other people I'm playing golf with, let alone a couple thousand people standing around you. And Jesus just did something amazing with the crowd that we didn't expect. It says that Jesus was amazed. That word means he turned to wonder. He turned to marvel. He turned to astonishment. What's fascinating about this Greek word that's used over 30 times in the Gospels is more often than not, it tells us that people were amazed by Jesus' teaching, amazed by Jesus' miracle, amazed by his prophecies, amazed at how he stood against self-righteous religious systems, how he stood beside so-called sinners, except in this text and in the only time in Luke's version of this, it tells us that Jesus was amazed. Jesus was amazed by this man's faith. Think about what he says to this man. In front of this crowd of people, you are public enemy number one. You are a hated Roman, yet I am amazed by your faith. What do you think this would have done to Jesus' Jewish audience? Jesus is teaching us something about the gospel, teaching us something about God. He's shifting our understanding of faith of who's in and who's out. And what's fascinating about this centurion is he believes that Jesus can make this possible. A man who had everything. He had power, he had wealth, he had knowledge, he had everything. And yet it is his faith in Christ that saved him and his servant. Not all these other things. Jesus was amazed. 
and they took action on his faith. It was not some internal philosophy. Notice that he didn't have the per- perfect doctrinal statement lined up. He didn't have the correct way of understanding baptism and which atonement theory we should subscribe to. He simply believed that Jesus could heal. And he took action. Do you recall those world events that took place that were so significant you can remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when it occurred? You remember what was going on on June the 9th, 1870? Nobody? Okay. It's on this day in 1870, the great novelist Charles Dickens died. Dickens brought us some of the most remarkable stories. David Copperfield, Tale of Two Cities, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, Bleak House, A Christmas Carol, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Okay, I was just making sure you're paying attention. In all of his characters, by far the most recognizable is Ebenezer Scrooge, a wealthy accountant with a tendency towards stinginess. Okay, that's an understatement. Ebenezer Scrooge is a man of complete greed and apathy towards his fellow man. Scrooge cares only for himself of, of maintaining what he has earned, so much that he managed to alienate himself from his family and the people who love him. His, his lack of empathy compelled him to overlook the very man that he worked next to, Bob Cratchit, and his handicapped son who is hungry. And what we learn through the character of Scrooge is deep insight into what a life looks like without love. Scrooge neither felt loved, nor did he love others. And yet what we see through Ebenezer is a profound transformation that love brings into our lives and through our lives into other people. Love gave Ebenezer a second chance, a new life. As Dickens would write, there are dark shadows on the earth, but its lights are stronger in contrast. You see, Dickens was a pathfinder, masterfully navigating a new path of storytelling and character development. And so many of our stories today are reflections of the path that Dickens forged. Jesus is our pathfinder. Jesus is our pathfinder intending to author a new story for our lives. In our world that has been carved out, there are so many paths of who's in and who's out, who's clean and who's unclean, who's socially acceptable and who's not, who should be cared for and who should be discarded, who's on the same level and who is subhuman. Jesus chose to show us a different path. And in 14 verses of Scripture, Jesus shows us the dichotomy of the inclusiveness of God's love. A peasant leper and a rich Roman centurion. The text challenges us in two ways. First, it asks us whether or not we believe that Jesus loves us as purely and transformatively and abundantly as this discarded subhuman and enemy of the state. My prayer is that you can say yes, that you can believe this morning that Christ loves you that much. And that you can choose to follow him in faith. The second challenge of this text is for us to consider whether or not we see others in the same way that Jesus sees others. Do you have ears to hear people's stories? Do we have hearts to feel people's pain and plight? Do we have eyes to see them as beloved children of God? 
do we have faith to believe that God desires for us to build authentic community with those who are very different from us? As one author put it, churches should aim to take people at every age and ability level and help them become the most loving version of themselves. They would help people face the challenges of life, challenges that could make them bitter and self-absorbed and callous or hateful with openness and courage and generosity. They would help people recognize when they're straying away from the love and help them back on the path. This encounter in Matthew is only setting up many more encounters of Jesus, our pathfinder, showing us a new way of thinking and living. Jesus is calling us to follow him into a life of transforming love for God and for others. Will we follow in his ways? Or will we decide to pack the sand around the whale with dynamite and blow it up?